0: All right, thanks, guys. I, it's so glad to have you uh, in church uh, this morning on this last Sunday here uh, in February, heading into the month of March. And uh, we're going to close out uh, our sermon series here uh, on, on Jesus stories. Hey, let me make one kind of housekeeping announcement in regards to next Sunday. Uh, next Sunday, uh, our team, and, and by that I mean me and, and, and the board, are releasing a statement in regards to uh, some of the uh, legal uh, uh, challenges we've been having a little bit behind the scenes with the state as it pertains to being open. We've made a decision uh, in this season uh, that probably the most valuable thing that we can do as a church is be open. I don't know about you, but Sunday feels like about the last normal thing that we've got left. Uh, And that decision has, uh, 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 well, the state is, uh, is, uh, uh, They're in process. <laughs> See, they're in a different season than us, but they're just in. They're in process, and so um, they uh, they served me papers last week. But, anyways, hey, we'll go make an announcement next Sunday about that. But I appreciate your prayers uh, as we go forward here uh, in 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 this community. Uh, our commitment is that Christ has been the head of the church for two thousand years, and I think He's doing a pretty good job. And so, uh, ultimately, our direction. Uh, and our mandate comes from him. This is the way the apostle Peter preaches in the book of Acts. He says, I must obey God rather than men. And so, you know, for us, we're trying to do the best that we can. Uh, and we're providing a lot of different ways for people to plug in. We've got a whole lot of folks watching online, and a whole lot of different ways that people can plug in kind of to this community through the website and through the app. Uh, but for those who choose to gather on Sunday morning, it is our conviction that they should be able to gather without harassment or intimidation from our state leaders. And... Uh, 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 next Sunday, we're we're gonna we're gonna fill you in on, on some of what we've been dealing with here, uh, in the background. I don't have a persecution uh, complex. I just I'm just keeping my head down, my hand on the plow. And it's just our conviction uh, in this season that that the church of Jesus Christ ought to gather. Uh, If not now, then when? (laughs) So the church was actually created for these types of moments. And so we don't hide under a rock until the storm is calm and then pretend like everything is normal. No, the church is a beacon of hope in a world flooded with crap. And so uh, our commitment is to stay open. And, uh, and whether they find or, or do whatever else, uh, this church and, and these doors will remain open. Anyways, hey, if you have a Bible, open to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 7. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke uh, as we look at a story from the life of Jesus. I think the Bible is the most compelling book in, in all of human history. I think Jesus is the most compelling figure in all of human history. Luke is one of the authors of the four Gospels. He is an eyewitness of the things that he writes It's not just a story. It's not just a a recollection written hundreds of years later. No, Luke is an eyewitness to the events that are happening. He's also a Gentile. He, He also gives us the book of Acts, which is the history or the record of the New Testament church. It's how we got where we got today. And I think even when you look at some of the practices of the church, although what we do here looks very modern compared to what they did 2,000 years ago, there are still central elements that have stayed the same. The preaching of the word, the worship of Jesus, the taking of communion, the receiving of tithe and offerings, that has been staple, staple ingredients of the church over the last 2,000 years. And Luke records that in the book of Acts and then tells us the story of Jesus, of course, in the gospel of Luke. We're going to start today in chapter 7 and in verse 1, but prior to being in 7 and in verse 1, Luke records the most famous sermon ever in all of history, and it comes from Luke 6. And in Luke 6, we call it today the sermon sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, is giving the blessings, and he's also giving the cautions. He says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. And blessed are you who weep now, for later you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you. And reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. And Jesus is giving this epic teaching that, that kind of forms the ideological foundation for his life, his ministry, and the the Christological ethic and coming off of the teaching in Luke 6, he goes down into the village of Capernaum, which borders the Sea of Galilee. I've, I've been in Capernaum. I've, I have walked where Jesus uh, has walked. I, I sat in the synagogue where Jesus most likely would have taught this 2,000 years ago. And I think something that's important for us to remember in our world today is that this book is not one book among many. Jesus is not one God amongst God. Scripture says it is not a broad road that leads to salvation, but instead a narrow narrow road and that narrow road is both radically exclusive and radically inclusive at the same time. By that I mean this, Jesus invites everybody, but it's not your way, it's his. He says, "No man comes to the Father except by me. We enter in through the veil of his torn flesh. We enter in through his atoning sacrifice and in doing so we have right standing before God. And I I think for us as we think about the story of Jesus and and, and the person of Jesus Christ, the message of the gospel it's imperative for us to reflect on it, not just from a historical perspective, not just from a narrative that is kind of nostalgic like wouldn't have been so interesting to live back in those times, but as a living breathing text that still speaks to us about the heart and character of God today. In fact, I like to tell people, if you want to hear uh, the voice of God, go ahead and read your Bible out loud and you will hear it and uh, it will be good for your spiritual development. In Luke 7 and starting in verse 1, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says this, when Jesus had finished teaching or finished saying all of these things to this people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered. Capernaum. Yeah, well, I want you to know this morning that the teaching on the mountain is just as important as the healing that we'll read about in the valley. Because the teaching of Christ informs not only how we believe, but the way in which we believe about the claims that he has made. Either Jesus is the most radically delusional figure that there has ever been, or he is the son of God. There is no if, ands, buts about it. And the reality is, is that scripture says, Paul preaches this in Romans, that God has planted the witness of eternity in every man's heart. Meaning that when we stand before God, no person will be without excuse as it pertains to what they have done with the revelation of God to us about his son. Even nature testifies about the triune Godhead. And Jesus in Luke 6 is teaching on the mountain. In Luke 7, he's descending into the village of Capernaum to work some miracles and some some healings in that context. Jesus is teaching because orthodoxy, which is right believing informs orthopraxy, which is right living, which helps inform our orthopathy, which is right feeling. Now, I know I mentioned some words that you never knew existed, but let me show you on the screen this morning kind of what I'm talking about. With orthodoxy, we mean the right belief or the right doctrine, That's what, that which has been passed down from the apostles that we read about in the New Testament, the, the, the orthodox doctrine or belief about who Jesus is just like following Jesus stuff is not a choose your own adventure book. It's not like a finger painting that you make and it just gets to form kind of whatever version it looks like. And you get to pick and choose and copy and paste and take a little bit of Christianity and a little bit of Eastern religion and mix it all together because that's really what makes you feel good. The reality is, is that for us, we have a received faith, which means it's been passed down from the forefathers to us. Which means we have a duty and an allegiance to the text to help inform not only what we believe, but how we believe about the claims of Christ. And this is what we mean when we say things like orthodoxy. What is our orthodox beliefs? You know, there's a lot of things in Christian life that I would say are insignificant, meaning that you can have a large area of disagreement. People can be on one. Side side of the aisle here, another side of the aisle there. But there are a couple non-negotiable things as we think about who this Jesus is. The idea that he lived a sinless life, that he was born of a virgin, that God raised him from the dead on the third day, that he is the one and only son of God, and that through him we have eternal life. When we think about our orthodox belief, we don't think about peripheral issues. We think about the centrality of Christ's message. And some people live their whole life really upset that people disagree with them about things that don't matter. Do you know that? all of our theology is gonna get corrected when we get to heaven? Right, like all of your timelines about when Christ is gonna return, when you get to heaven, Jesus is gonna be like, I told you, and it looks a little different than you thought it would look like, and that's okay. But as it pertains to the central truths, the foundational claims that this text makes about this God that we worship, those become dear to our heart and they inform the framework of our mind. It's orthodoxy. But it's not just right believing or right thinking, it's right behavior. It's orthopraxy. Yeah, you know, Sometimes in religious environments, it's all about the praxy. It's all about the practice. It's not about believing right or having the right emotion or having the right foundation. It's just about exterior work. And I think sometimes as it pertains to uh, exterior work, We've got to be mindful of the critique that Jesus makes to the religious leaders in the New Testament. He says, you all are like whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. He says, you have an exterior veneer of righteousness, but you have interior decay. And that happens when all we focus on is praxis. But when you have orthodoxy and orthopraxy and orthopathy, what they do is they insulate your Christian life. I've got right doctrine. I'm confessing with my mouth what I have believed to be true about this God revealed in this book. In doing so, it informs the behavior of my life. In doing so, that behavior informs my emotional cortex, meaning I think right, I behave right, and I feel right. And in doing so, what I am is becoming a well-developed believer. And for us, what do we think about the reason why Jesus makes such a, 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 a mark in regards to his teaching... Why his teaching and his values and his statements and his parables and his stories have this endearing value all throughout time. It's because Jesus is teaching people how to believe right and in doing so informing the rest of their lives. Jesus never leaves anything half done. The work in Capernaum will wait until what needs to be delivered on the mountain is fully complete. The brother of Jesus, James, says this in James 1, allow perseverance to finish its work. And Jesus says this in John 17 during the high priestly prayer, I have finished the work. Jesus, in this context, is communicating an ethic that we see all throughout Scripture, which is that He finishes everything that He started. He never leaves things halfway done. If you're a believer today and what you're dealing with is not good, let me encourage you with this statement God's not done. Why? Because He's working all things together for the good of those who love Him. So if you'll keep your eyes on Jesus, He will not only author your story, but He will finish your story. Jesus never leaves things halfway done. After Jesus finished teaching, the next assignment awaited him in Capernaum. The Bible says this in verse 2 of Luke 7. There a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. And the centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him asking him to come and heal his servant. Watch what happens in verse three. The Bible says the centurion heard of Jesus. I want you to see something that Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's why we preach Jesus, proclaim Jesus, worship Jesus, honor Jesus, because when Jesus is lifted up, watch what happens. He draws all people unto himself. We preach the word. We teach the word. We worship the living word, which is Christ. And in doing so, it produces faith in this environment for people to believe that God's not done with their lives. You might've came in this morning low on faith. That's okay. Because God is seating you next to somebody who at least has a mustard seed. And in this corporate environment, we pull on heaven. And in doing so, we're able to receive one for another. And when we see this Roman centurion, he's he's having this mental process on the back end that is being communicated in this dialogue with Christ. I have heard of who you are. And he's outside of covenantal faith. He's not a Jew himself. He is part of the same governmental system that will end up putting Jesus to death, but he has heard of the works of Jesus. You know, people in this community are hearing about what God is doing in this property. People in this region are hearing the testimony and the story of Jesus. And John says in the book of Revelation that the story of Jesus carries within it the ingredient of prophecy, meaning that when people hear about what God is doing, it produces faith in their life to believe that if God did it for them, he can do it for me. And so the story of Jesus is going out. The Roman centurion is believing based on this faith, this gift of faith that is capturing him. And watch what happens in verse four. The Bible says when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue watch this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue essentially this look at everything i've done i deserve this from god we deserve nothing, yet we've freely been given everything. You deserve judgment, but you got mercy. You deserved wrath, but you got grace. You deserved hell, but you got heaven. We deserve death, but instead we've got life. And how good is it to serve a God who is unimpressed with our resume? And that's the best news that there's ever been because it's not about you, it's about Him. It's just so interesting to me that the friends of this man are coming to Jesus and what they're presenting is the resume. Look at all the things that he's built for you. Look at all the times that he's helped the people and helped the nation and served you in some sort of vicarious way. And now out of his activity, he deserves this miracle from the Lord. And Frank, can I tell you uh, th- th- that's what I refer to as kind of the Tower of Babel syndrome? It's what we try to build under our own power to attract the attention of heaven. Yet the Bible says this unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers build in vain. Unless the Lord watches the city, The watchmen watch in vain. So unless Christ becomes the cornerstone of the thing that's being constructed, then what you build is about you, not about him. See, that's why you gotta build your family system around an honor for the person of Christ. That's why you gotta be in a church that first seeks to honor and be in his presence. Why? Because this thing doesn't exist for us. It exists for him. And it's just so interesting here in this dialogue that they bring all the things that they think that they earn or deserve and are asking for a miracle based upon this resume. Jesus responds to our requests, not based on our merits, but instead based on his. Do you know the first thing that God will destroy in pursuit of your heart is the narrative of performance that causes us to try and reach God on our own merits? Scripture says he's close to the broken. He's close to the contrite. He's close to the humble. The people who should have known that Christ was the fulfillment of what all of the prophets look forward to missed it because they were exalted in their own mind. This was the song of Mary when she found out that she was pregnant with a son of God. She said those who have been exalted in their own mind, God himself will bring low. And I think sometimes in the busyness of Christian life, we can get it twisted. Like if I could just work really hard and perform really well and present all of these things to God, then out of this transactional relationship, we'll all get is a miracle from him. And yet all over scripture, what we see is the rain falls on both the just and the unjust. And God is most close to those who are most broken. Meaning this, we don't deserve it. And that's the beauty of the gospel is it's not centered around the need that we have in our own hearts, but instead around what Christ provides and instead freely gives. And in fact, Jesus says it this way, that those who love much have been forgiven much. That those who recognize the poverty of their own spirit and in doing so have an appreciation for the things that God provides are the ones who are closest to what love provides. Jesus responds to our request not based on our merits, but instead based on his. Yeah, you know, oftentimes when um, I, I, I preach that there'll be times uh, where, I, where I close my eyes and it, I'm just trying to concentrate on the narrative or I'm trying to formulate a thought. And, and somebody came up to me a few weeks ago. They said, pastor, they said, we know when you close your eyes, you're just seeing stadiums filled with people and preaching and the gospel. And And uh, truthfully, what I see when I close my eyes is six years ago when we planted in a living room in Snohomish, what I see is 15 young people hungry for an encounter with the Lord. And what I'm reminded of is that no matter how much other people become impressed with what I build, I've got to stay impressed with what he builds right? And so for me, I've got to continually disengage from the things that would feed my ego and instead invest in the things that magnify his presence. When we magnify the Lord, his benefit is magnified in our own lives. And maybe that's the tyranny of Christian life is that suddenly we become so impressed with what we build that we forget when we had nothing, God was everything to us. Maybe that's what it looks like to return to our first love and be mindful of those moments where there was nothing impressive about what you offered. And instead, everything impressive about what Christ provides. He'll show up, we just have to ask. Watch what scripture says, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you for everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. In verse six, the story continues. The Bible says, so Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. Now watch how the narrative changes. Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. And that is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed the presence and the power of God is always attracted to desperation and humility. It's what his power rests upon. I love how in the centurion's mind, all of a sudden he is combating the narrative of his friends. Instead of coming to Jesus with the list of his accomplishments, he's saying, Christ, I know I don't deserve this. And in fact, I don't even need you to visit my house, but if you'll just release your word, I believe my servant will be made well. In a sense, he's pulling on a principle from Psalms 107 where the psalmist in a messianic sense is writing about Christ. And he says this, he will send his word forth and they will be healed. He rescued them from the grave. For when Jesus speaks, sickness is eradicated. When Jesus speaks, fear is silence. When Jesus speaks, every other voice grows quiet because his voice is the only one that's like that of many waters. See, words are weapons in the mouth of the believer for the power of life and death is in the tongue. And that's why you've got to believe what is right so you can confess what is true. See, if you believe wrong things, you'll confess wrong things. And when you confess wrong things, what you do is you walk into self-fulfilling prophecies about how negative your life is, about how your best days are behind you, about how God is limited in his power and grace, about how you can't be forgiven and you can never forgive yourself. All of a sudden, people make these declarations based on bad theology and bad thinking, and it creates for them a world in which they live in, and then they have the audacity to blame God for their boring life. And maybe if we believe what's true, then we can have the good confession of faith, which is grounded in what God says, first about who he is, and then secondly about who we are. And when we confess what is true, and when we live what is true, all of a sudden what you'll begin to notice is that your entire life revolves around the idea that in him we move and live and have our being. I love the faith of the centurion in this environment. Just release Your word, He says this in verse eight, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And I I tell this one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Friend, there's an authority that comes on your life as a result of being with Jesus. And it takes you from negotiating with darkness to dismantling darkness. And you can't fake authority. And you can't fake intimacy. And when you spend time with Jesus... You become like the disciples where the crowd said of them, they're not eloquent in speech and we don't really understand why they have the draw that they have, but these men have been with Jesus. These people have been marked by an experience with Jesus. Friends, Jesus is not just a fact to be understood. He's not just an individual to be observed. He is a person to be experienced and that's why we worship the way that we do and we create room for God to do his best work inside of us because when you experience Jesus, even when you don't have all of your facts straight, something happens in your heart. Aren't you glad that there's not a factual test in order to get into heaven? Aren't you glad that you don't have to have the 24 bare minimum theological truths all memorized by heart in order to get into heaven? You have to have an experience with Jesus. That's the thief on the cross who says, I want to be with you in paradise. And Jesus says, close enough, you're going to make it in. (laughs) I'll tell you, when you have an experience with this Jesus... It takes you from an observer of faith to a participant in faith. You know, today you could go home and you could Google any celebrity and you could find out probably where they live, probably who they're related to. You could figure out their height, their weight, their race, their name of the kids, what they ate yesterday, what paparazzi took a photo of them in what place. And, and you could pretend like you have a lot of knowledge about them. But until you meet them, All you have is facts, you don't have an experience. And some people have become so impressed with their factual knowledge about who Jesus is. Come on friends, I spent a lot of time in higher education. I believe in it, I love it, but I'll tell you what, if I have to sit in a classroom one more time with somebody who has facts and not an experience, I think I'm gonna quit. (laughs) When people have an experience with Jesus, what they've got is living water that's flowing out from them. I can't always explain it, but I've met a man who's told me Everything I've ever done, and that one gave me living water, and that Jesus is worthy of praise and adoration. When you have an experience, <laughs> so I'm not smart enough to do this without an experience. Man, when you get touched by the Holy Ghost, all of a sudden, when the person that you've read about comes alive in your heart of hearts, something changes. <laughs> and you can argue somebody out of a fact, it's hard to argue them out of an experience. If I can argue into the kingdom, one bad situation can argue you out of the kingdom. But when you've had an experience with Jesus, come hell or high water, I'm hanging on to him. And so we wanna have a faith that is broader and deeper and more rooted than the disappointments of life. And in order to do that, you have to go from just memorizing text to having an experience in your heart. For us, it's so important, especially in our society in the West. We're love drunk on intellectualism and enlightenment. We are so impressed with the things that we've built. And the reality is, is that we serve a God who isn't. And when we have an experience with him, things change. There's an authority that comes on your life as a result of being with Jesus. You can't have it unless you are first under it. Meaning this, you aren't a free agent. Some people I come to church, bumblebees. They're just pollinating every flower in the community. <laughs> to hear one day, gone the next, just every, I'm just pop you, I'm just, I'm just pollinating, pastor. I'm just blessing every house in the world. Jesus didn't say he would bless his church. He said, I will build my church. And for us, what we're encouraging people to do is to become builders here at the pursuit to help pick up some tools and stand next to me on the wall and help build with christ co-labor and co-heir with him in christ jesus the work of the gospel here in this community you know what i've noticed is that when you are in a house that has authority god places that on your life as well And friend, for you and me, as we commit ourselves to a long obedience in the direction of Christ's followership, when we find ourselves planted like oaks of righteousness in the house of God, what it places on our life is an authority to conduct the king's business. We're not just bees buzzing around to a bunch of flowers. We're saying, God, I'm going to commit myself to something imperfect because you're perfect. I'm going to commit myself to something that is broken, that's going to hurt me, that's going to disappoint me, but my eyes aren't on it, they're on you. And together, we're going to build something beautiful in the northwest. Not to build our resumes or to stroke our egos, but because there is a wounded lamb at the center of the universe who is worthy of all honor and praise. And when we keep that our focus, we begin to recognize as I submit myself to authority, I have authority in the world around me. Worship and and adoration takes you to a place of authority by which you can command doors to be opened. Now watch what happens in verse nine. This is the response of Jesus. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and they found the servant. Well, the word amazed using this verse is the Greek word, the And it literally means to marvel or to wonder. Jesus hasn't even met the Roman centurion. He's just on the road. And the centurion sends word via his servants to Jesus. Y'all don't even have to come to my house. Just release your word and what is disordered will come into alignment. And it's like Jesus stops and takes a step back. And the Bible says he was amazed. He says, I haven't even seen faith like this in all of Israel. The people that I'm coming to seek and save, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I haven't even seen faith like this, but this man, it's amazing. It's moving my heart. It's catching my attention. I think sometimes our picture of God is like he's an elderly, frail, easily irritated old man sitting on a throne really far removed from the prayers or praise of his people. And every once in a while, he'll pour out a little revival here, a little awakening here, a little resource here, a little provision here. But other than that, he's got a straight face, non-emotional, uninterested, disconnected. Can I tell you something? Don't allow your relationship with a dysfunctional earthly father to paint your heavenly father. Just because you were raised in an emotionally sterile house doesn't mean that's how the father operates just because you were raised in a disconnected, dysfunctional system, doesn't mean that's how the father is. In fact, the Bible says that this is the one who dances with joy over his people. He is a God who in his sovereignty has made his heart vulnerable to his people. That's why the Bible warns us against grieving the spirit of God, because he has made his heart vulnerable to his people, which tells me this, When we add our faith together, to simply believe that God is as good as Scripture says he is, it so moves his heart that he takes a step back and says, this is amazing. Do you know the only other time that Jesus uses this word in connection with faith? You know where it is? Mark 6. And Mark 6 is not a great story. In fact, it's a terrible one because Jesus walks into his home city and there's an entire group of people that miss out on their miracles. In fact, the Bible says Jesus could not do many wonders there because of their lack of honor. And the Bible uses this same exact word. It says, and Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. And I thought to myself, how many times has God been amazed at my lack? And how can I shift into being a person of faith that when I capture the attention of heaven, it's because I'm moving the heart of God with a radically desperate and humble faith that simply believes God is as good as scripture says he is. Yeah, you know, I think when the eyes of God scan to and fro throughout the earth, there's a little city that half the angels probably can't even pronounce, it's Nahamish. what I hope is that what's offered in this place is something that captures the attention of heaven. Man, I'm moved by what's happening in that people. My heart is moved. My heart is overjoyed. I am standing in amazement. You know, when we talk about moving the heart of God, we're, we're talking about it in the sense that we have been invited into relationship with him. We're not just observing him from earth's perspective. We've been invited to co-rule and to co-reign. You're seated in heavenly places, not earthly ones. And the reason God whispers is because he is close. You've been invited to move his heart. (laughs) And when we add our faith together in this environment, it's truly my belief that the heart of God leaps. Man, I'm amazed. Do they always get it right? No. a little disorganized? Sure. They need my help more than they think? Yeah, absolutely. But man, my heart is amazed at their faith. We're just saying, God, if you'll just speak the word, if you'll just speak the word, even if I don't always have the same emotions, even if I don't always have the same goosebumps in a real spiritual service, even if I don't always feel it on the interior, God, if you'll speak your word, That's good enough for me. I'll believe you right there. Would you just stand with me as we close?